I'm really excited about the speaker meeting tonight. Uh, I don't know a lot about Jesse, but I do know that he's been really kind to me, that I run into him in the strangest places, mostly in the middle of the road or near the middle of the road. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to hear his story. So with that, I'm just going to turn it over to Jesse. Thank you. Amy. All right. My name is Jesse. I'm an alcoholic and an, and an addict. Um, I emphasize that because chemicals and substances other than alcohol are definitely a big part of my story. Um, but I do really find solace in AA and have for the past um, just over three years that I've been sober. And for that, I'm really, really grateful. And a big part of that is been, you know, like committing to this program and showing up um, however I, I can um, day to day. So I'll just kind of, you know, take you through my experience. Um, and I'll just, I'll start a little bit with my childhood. I am originally from Louisiana. I was born in Lafayette. Um, older brother, younger sister. I had a fairly normal childhood. Although I was the middle child and like middle child syndrome certainly was a really, a real thing for me um, growing up. I was a very interesting individual when I was younger, very kind of shut off. I always felt like I never really belonged even as a kid, isolated a lot, just very introverted. Um, I did really well in school. Um, I had few friends, but the friends that I had were like really close and dear to me. I was a bit socially inept growing up, um, really shy. But I was a smart kid. I was into gymnastics, uh, skateboarding, you know, like typical kid. Um, but, you know, when I first started to, well, I'll, I'll say this, I remember my first taste of alcohol. And I was about four or five years old. My grandfather, my dad's dad, he drank Old Milwaukee. And I used to love the smell of it for some reason. And I remember one day sitting outside, we were probably having a crawfish boil because that's what Cajuns do. And I remember he handed me his beer and offered me a sip. And I remember tasting it and it was like the effervescence of the bubbles and like, just the taste, everything about it was like really exciting. And it's really bizarre that I have such a clear memory of that. And it, that's almost an indication that right there, I'm, I'm alcoholic. Um, so, but you know, my, my, uh, the manifestation of alcohol, alcoholism didn't take place till later. Um, anyhow, I, you know, grew up pretty normally, you know, uh, suburban lifestyle, decent schools. Um, I was raised Catholic, but I never really, it never jived with me at all. Um, I actually remember being forced to go to catechism. And if you, if you have grown up Catholic, you know what that is. Um, and I hated it. I remember crying the day that I was forced to sign up for this. And I was like, Oh God, you know, it's not for me. Um, so, but around high school is when I started to experiment with 
drugs and alcohol and marijuana was like one of the first things and drinking beers with my friends when I was like 15, 16. Um, but, you know, I kept it pretty low key at the time. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 13. So I definitely, that definitely manifested in my life in, in ways that I'm able to see more clearly in retrospect. Like I didn't have the nurturing that I really felt like I needed. And, you know, I lost my, my mother was my primary nurturer in the household. So I felt like a big part of me left when my parents divorced. And so I started acting out a lot, a lot more as I got older. Um, and so around 17 or so, um, I want to point this out because this was an indicator of how opiates showed up for me. And I had my first taste of painkillers um, at 17. It was something called Darvacet, which is a pretty low grade painkiller. But I remember having that and like every other substance I tried up to that point just did not touch that part of my soul that uh, that opiates did. And I remember that very clearly and the relief that it gave me, the like, all my inhibitions were gone. Like I could really, really just be myself. Um, and after high school, I went, went to college at LSU. And that's when things like really started to pick up. I moved into my own apartment on campus and it was pretty much party time. Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing in college. Like I was doing what everybody said I should do. Like engineering was a hot thing at the time. So I went into like biochemical engineering and I just remember like stressing myself out over this and it just never really felt like that's what I wanted to do, but I was doing it anyway. And that bothered me. And so I just acted out more and spent most of my time partying, drinking, smoking pot, women, all that stuff. Um, and I dropped out of college after a few years and I um, started working mm -hmm. and then I got my first DWI when I was like 20, I want to say 23. And I had like every excuse under the sun as to like why that was just, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, it was raining. I pulled onto the other side of the median because I couldn't see the median. You know, and my lawyer at the time was a drinking buddy of mine, and he was just like co-signing that. And he was—I remember he told me he was basically telling me I was I was drinking and driving wrong. He said, "Next time you get behind the wheel and and you've had some drinks, roll all the windows down, turn the music off, both hands on the steering wheel, and just you know." eyes to the road I'm like oh okay he's a lawyer he must know what he's doing like, he probably does this all the time and this is my DWI attorney telling me this um, and so yeah that was I remember after that happening I think it was that one um, I got off like 
I ended up filed for something called Article 892 in Louisiana, where if it's a first offense, you just get it basically dismissed. So I got away from that one scot-free. Um, but further down the road, my opiate addiction started to pick up, and I found things like Oxycontin and Roxy and morphine and... Like I fell in love, really did, um, and I could I could could be on opiates and drink all night and like stay up and it, you know it really energized me, um, and I could just party for hours, night after night, um, and then I picked up another DWI, probably a couple years later, two or three years after that first one, and. After that one, I was like, it kind of hit me to some degree, like, oh shit, you know, like something's going on here. Like I'm starting to really experience these larger repercussions for what I'm doing. So I'm going to take some time off and not drink and not do anything. And, you know, with the assistance of my girlfriend at the time, she kind of kept me accountable and I took some time off. Uh, I was like, I set myself up for a week and... I did the week and then we were out at dinner and I was like, week's done, I'm gonna drink. She's like, you sure about that? I'm like, yeah, yeah let's do this. And uh, right back to it, right back to it. But at that point, it perpetuated into something that I didn't quite expect, especially with when it came to my opiate usage. Um, I was spending more and more money. I found myself like, Powerless. That was the first time that I can recall recognizing my powerlessness over something being like at the window in my house, just like crawling out of my skin, waiting for my next fix. Um, and that was a really awful way to live, but I lived that for quite some time. Spent all my money, um, hurt some friends stole from people, my roommate, you know, I started to really um, experience more and more negative repercussions for what I was doing and um, ended up in my first time in Baton Rouge, ended up in the mental ward um, because I threatened to kill myself and, you know, started that whole cycle for myself. But... Came to a point where my opiate usage and drinking, and drinking was there the whole time, along with other things. Um, it just got so out of hand, and my parents got involved, my brother got involved, and we decided best course of action was to move me to Austin. And my brother had been here for a few years, uh, very well to do, works for AMD. He had been here and he you know, was starting to build a family and he wanted to help and we thought that was the, the best way to deal with this issue. And so I quit doing opiates, came to Austin in 2009 and again, just like, I didn't even really notice at the time, but I just was, drinking was always there and in my family, Everybody drank, but I, I drank more than anyone else, that's for sure. Um, and so even with the opiates gone, my alcoholic 
business started to manifest and ended up getting kicked out of my brother's house. Um, not because I did anything extremely destructive, but he just knew he's like, man, like, I don't know what's going on with you. We thought this was going to help you. You can't stop drinking. Um, you know, I can't have you here. And that was, that was a really hard thing for me to accept to like have my family, like try to save my ass and then boom, right back out. And I luckily had a friend who moved out here around the same time I did from Baton Rouge. And he offered me a place to stay, which was in a tent in his backyard. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, fuck it, sign me up. That's all I got. Like, I'll take it. And that was one of the most depressing periods of my life, living that way. Um, I thought, you know, everyone abandoned me. Um, I was living in a tent outside in Austin in the middle of the summer. Like, it was pretty awful. Um, and it got to the point where I just, I couldn't see a way out. And the, the only way out I saw at the time was to, to take my own life. And I had not drank or used anything for like a day, but I was just spinning out of control. And um, I believed no one was able to help me. And so I went to the HEB on Congress on Old Torf, bought a bunch of um, sleeping meds, painkillers, and a big ass bottle of wine and started to do the thing. And at some point the night prior, I had sent a message to my mother and it was an absolute red flag that something was going on. So my brother had intervened. Luckily, just he showed up in the midst of all this and took me to Seton Shoal Creek. And that was one of many stays at Seton Shoal Creek. Um, <laughs> this was 2000, uh, I want to say 2010 or so. And so um, that was the first time I ever experienced AA was during my stay there. I was pretty twisted up and, you know, I was honest with the uh, staff there and told them that I had an issue with substances and alcohol and they suggested, you know, there's a group that comes once a week, you should go check this out. And so I always say this, I, I scooted in there in my non-skid socks and my, my little gown and <laughs> attended this meeting and it was weird. It was a bunch of old people. But as the meeting went on, I could feel this really unique energy I'd never felt before, um, sober. And it felt really good. It felt really positive. I could sense this connectivity that I'd never felt before in my life from anyone, uh, my, even my family. And so that experience really stuck with me, but AA did not at all. <laughs> I, I tried some sober living immediately after that. Um, you know, and they require you to go to meetings, but it just, it wasn't there for me. Um, I don't know why, you know, I don't have an explanation for that, but I just believe in, on some level it wasn't my time. And so I tried that, you know, I'll kind of skip <laughs> some of the middle there because it was basically just more research. Um, 
And then in 2011, I met heroin. And that was the one that really took me down um, because painkillers got way more expensive than I could afford. Um, and drinking alone wasn't cutting it at the time. And so I started to abuse heroin. And that lasted about two months from like start to lose everything and went back to Seton Shoal Creek. <laughs> that was probably the third time maybe at that point. And that was pretty awful. Having a detox from that was really miserable. I, I would never want to go through that again or, or wish that upon anybody. It's a pretty awful experience. Um, but somehow I managed, you know, I had the care of doctors and stuff. And I, at that point, the only thing I hadn't done was treatment. So I checked myself in with the support of St. David's who paid for my stay, which is phenomenal. Um, I checked into Austin Recovery in Buda. And that was a life-changing experience for me in a lot of ways. Um, I had no idea what to expect, but I had gotten to a point where I was so desperate I would try anything. And so I did everything that I was suggested, that was suggested to me. And so I did, and I did some step work. But I do want to point out a series of experiences that I had that's very unique to my story. Um, and that occurred during my stay at Austin Recovery, um, which really shifted my path individually and my journey and discovering my purpose and, and what I do currently. So it was about two weeks in to my stay at Austin Recovery, and I was having these really interesting experiences. And, and most of the time I thought it was because of like coming off of drugs and alcohol or like uh, maybe some of the medication they gave me. This was my thought about it. But I had a series of experiences that I don't think could be explained scientifically or biologically. Um, and I believe, firmly believe to be spiritual and energetic in nature. And through this series of experiences, I felt a loving presence that I'd never felt in my life before. It was a, a palpable energy that encompassed my entire being. I could feel through my body. Um, I felt my heart open, uh, which was a very strange experience. And I felt energy move through me that I never felt before, debilitating, on the floor, crying, tears of joy, um, really, really profound experience. Um, and, you know, this led up to an experience later where I felt this energy moving through the palms of my hands and I had no idea what was going on but long story short this led me to do spiritual healing work that I do now um, I found out about a modality called Reiki and I started on that path um, I've also become a developing psychic medium as a result of these spiritual experiences that I had um, and I firmly believe that through my 
recovery process that it was an indication from the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, I tapped into a gift that perhaps had been dormant. And um, that's what I do today. Um, and it's, it's the most fulfilling work that I've ever experienced up to this point in my life. So back on track to my experience with recovery. Um, I did 44 days in Austin recovery. I did steps one through five, um, got some relief from step five. And, you know, having had that experience that I had while I was in there, I was like, shit, this is it. Like, this is what I needed. Um, I just needed to discover this profound spiritual purpose that I have. And I, I held on to that for about a year and a half after being in Austin recovery and I stayed sober, but I was still filled with anxiety and fear. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought that's what life was supposed to be like. I felt good when I was doing my work, but outside of that, like I was still in a really codependent relationship. Like my life was still pretty messy. My, my internal state was unmanageable for most, most of the time. Um, and, you know, as they say, you know, eventually life happened and the only coping mechanism I was familiar with up to that point had been alcohol and substances. And so after a year of dry time, I went back to drinking and the cycle returned and um, I definitely was not doing my healing work. Um, I just was a mess again, back in my old patterns. Um, 2015 was one of the most difficult years of my life. I lost a five-year codependent relationship and immediately after that lost my mother to suicide. She, um, she was one of us. I'm pretty damn sure. Um, it didn't manifest the same way that maybe we see or hear about in the rooms, but um, you know, after my parents divorced, my, my mom kind of went AWOL. She just got in these really bad relationships, started drinking very regularly. I'm not sure if she was using some substances, but experiences lead me to believe that that's a, a possibility. Um, she was in and out of psych wards, you know, threatening suicide at least once every three months. You know, I'd get a phone call, and that was really hard to deal with, man. Like, even times when I was dry, having my mother call me suicidal, I'm like, I can barely deal with my shit. Like, how am I supposed to, to deal with this? So, it was a lot of struggle with her. Um, and... It was that one time that, you know, we thought, again, she was crying wolf, and uh, she took her own life. And this was February 15th of 2015. And I had been back drinking at the time prior to that, but having experienced that and not having the support I needed, not having healthy coping mechanisms, I spiraled out um, in a really big way. <laughs> And, 
you know, burned up some bridges and relationships again and destroyed my life again. And at that point, I had gone back to treatment. I, I went back to Austin Recovery, hoping for the answer. Um, I didn't have a profound spiritual awakening this time. It was a lot more involved for me. Like It took a lot more work for me to get sober, stay sober, start to feel good again. But I did it. Um, and then I, stayed, I got out, stayed sober for probably two weeks, started drinking again. And what got me to my low point this last time was, you know, after I'd gotten out of treatment, finally got a house, um, got some of my friends back, got my dog back, um, had some money, and I was looking at, like, again, I'm just going to do this to myself again and burn my life down, like, I'm going to lose it all. And I had spent a week week and a half drinking alone in my room um, to the point where my liver was hurting. And I would go to get more alcohol to, to cover up the fact that my liver was hurting. I'm like, Jesus, this is really awful. And luckily, I, had, I have a friend in my life who um, she just shows up. And it's, it's pretty amazing. She showed up and <laughs> talked some sense into me. And I was able to see and realize that, you know, like, I got to do something else. Everything up to that point just had not been working. Like, just the treatment, just the, the mental wards, um, just, you know, discovering this this wonderful purpose that I feel called to perform like those things alone or together <laughs> were not doing it and what was the last thing I hadn't done and I realized what I had not done was <laughs> go past step five and like commit to doing this program that had been like in my face for quite some time and you know in that desperation I called my sponsor who luckily I'd picked up a sponsor after I got out of AR that last time and uh, <laughs> he he basically let me go um, after a while of not talking to him and I, I get it but without hesitation when I called him told him what was going on he said let's go to a meeting and so I did and came and sat right there and was miserable for a long ass time so anxious so much energy like I didn't know what to do with and you know early sobriety sucks but I did the best that I could and um, I think one of the biggest takeaways from what my sponsor taught me was to just focus on doing the next right thing and I would probably call him three times a day just so he could tell me that, but I, <laughs> but I fucking needed that, you know, like I needed that. Um, that's what kept me sober. And I also want to point this out too, and, it, and 
I feel really blessed that this is my experience, but after that moment I decided that I'm done, I'm gonna do AA, you know, like last resort, um, I never had a craving. I, yeah, I don't know. I, from what I hear, it's not always like that. But I feel really blessed that that was my experience because, you know, it probably takes some of the strain off of getting sober early on. And anyhow, so what sobriety has been like for me, um, you know, I guess going through the steps, I knew I was powerless for <laughs> over and over and over and over, but I never did anything about it. Um, as far as a higher power for me, um, like I said, Catholicism was not <laughs> my bag. Um, it works for some of my family members, but it wasn't my thing. Um, in my early 20s, I, uh, and this is before my alcoholism and, and drug abuse like really took off, I had periods where I was practicing various types of spiritual concepts and had lots of spiritual experiences that were sober. Um, and so having gone through those in my own journey, it wasn't hard for me to say, okay, I've had these like really concrete experiences that tell me like this physical reality that I'm experiencing is not the only thing there is. Um, and, uh, you know, within those experiences, I was shown that there's something greater than me that is guiding um, all these things that I'm experiencing in my life and in my reality. So step two wasn't hard. I was like, okay, like I don't even have to think or, or believe or try to create a concept. Like I feel that, I acknowledge that, I, I am that. Um, now step three, I had no fucking idea what that was supposed to be. I was like, I could, I could believe that, I could say that I wanna turn my life over to the care of this thing that I know is real, but how, do, how does that look? And for me, that really just looks like doing the step work and maintaining a spiritual life in a physical body. Um, and, you know, big part of that is like doing the inventories, working on myself, prayer, meditation, and just like including all of these aspects and, and combining them into a spiritual practice. Step four was pretty easy for me. I knew I fucked up a lot. I wasn't, I, I wasn't really, I didn't have a lot of resistance to admitting these things because I don't know, I have a pretty heavy conscience. Like I, I couldn't hide anything. I didn't want to, I was pretty much done. Um, so making that list this last time was, was easy. Step five, easy. I got relief um, this last time. Um, it wasn't the same level of relief I had gotten the first time I did it, but I knew there was something that was working. And so that, that kept me going. Um, step six. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I don't care what has to be changed about me. Um, I don't want to live this way anymore. Like, please <laughs> like take this from me. Uh, let me be of service. Um, and so, you know, I did the step seven prayer and all that. And I feel like that's just an ongoing thing for me is to ask 
a higher power for help on a regular basis. I feel like that's just kind of, you know, the inventory and the prayer and the meditation. Um, now step eight and nine, God, I hated that when I first started. I was so afraid of making amends to people because I was afraid of how people would react when I told them that how badly I fucked up. Um, had a lot of resistance about that. I remember calling my sponsor regularly when I was just like not even doing working on my fourth step, talking about step nine, and he would have to say, you know, like just we'll get there. You know, focus on the next right thing. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, but I'd still call him later. Like, what about this? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was mortified. But when I started to do step nine, man, I experienced some great relief from that. And, and my beliefs around how that was going to manifest and, you know, what doing, doing these amends was going to, what kind of response I was going to get, like totally changed, um, when I actually did them. Uh, I do like to talk about one experience, which was one of my first amends to some family. I had done some crazy shit one Easter and, and <laughs> made an ass of myself and, and hurt my family. And, you know, I really felt like I needed to make amends for that, especially as one family member. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, I, I knew I needed to do this. And so this was probably, this was definitely within my first year. And I woke up one Sunday morning and I was like planning out my day in my head. And then I paused for a moment and I said, you know, God, if you have something better for me to do, let's do that. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I get a phone call from this aunt who, who lives in Dallas. And I had no idea, but she happened to be at a spa resort called Travas. Um, it's not too far from here, about 45 minutes. Um, and she said, hey, we're at the spa. Do you want to come hang out for the afternoon? I'm like, well, I don't have a car. Like, how am I going to get it out there? She's like, I'll rent you a limo. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so in, in my perception, that was essentially, you know, the universe just rolling out the red carpet. Like, here you go. And so, of course, I went. It was great. <laughs> limo ride all the way to Travas. And um, hung out. And I... You know, I'd gone over what I was going to say, I was going to say it with my sponsor and some other people in the room and still really nervous about it, but um, I made the amends and the response I got was, was so loving and so just amazing. Um, I was like, okay, cool. I had a little more confidence built up about doing that. And so little by little... Um, each amend that I made um, showed me that, you know, it really is just about me and, and cleaning up my side of the street and righting the wrongs that, that I made throughout my drinking. And, and still, like, I don't really have to make very many amends these days. I, I try to stay pretty sharp with, with 
my spiritual condition, but I do slip up here and there and it's usually minor things. But now that I've had some practice and some experience, it's like, okay, it's, it's almost second nature. And that's also another aspect about this program that I love is that it's not so cerebral anymore. It's like, I'm not having to figure things out. I'm not having to like go through this, like, um, long process to like make things happen. It's like becoming a working or it is a working part of who I am and like a lifestyle that I live now. And so, yeah, that's what like step 10 is for me. I, I do write sometimes, but a lot of the time to be honest, and this is my experience is that if I'm, if I'm off, if I'm not feeling right, um, I take time to examine that. I use my meditation practice as an opportunity to have a process. Um, and I like to do what I call somatic processing, is that if I'm feeling something in my body that's off, if I have anxiety or fear or whatever, that I really create space and allow myself to feel through those things. And nine times out of ten, it's like, not anything I did wrong, but a feeling that I just need to move through me. And I get relief from that. Um, now, there are other times where um, I just need a journal. Like, I'm feeling like shit. So I'm mad at somebody. Something's happened. And I need to get that out on paper. Or I need to talk it out with my sponsor. Or I need to just come sit in a meeting. Like, there's a, an amazing quality that comes from sitting in a group of, of people who are on this journey that it's almost like connect in the space and it helps to like bring out and relieve your troubles and I find that truly amazing and satisfying and that's a big reason why I continue to come like it's nice like I do share at meetings occasionally but to come and sit and experience that relief and and get some some peace and serenity it's it's um, amazing to me um and so step 11, yeah, my meditation practices, uh, I rarely miss a day. If I miss a day of meditation, it's um, for good reason. Um, and another reason for that is because of the, the healing work that I do. It requires that I do have a very strict regimented meditation practice so that I can keep my energetic state balanced so that I can share and connect with people on that level and do my work effectively. Um, and I love meditation. Like it's, it's so, there's so much to explore in here, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And prayer for me, I just keep it simple. It, uh, it changes. It has changed a bit throughout sobriety, but it's usually, I ask, I ask spirit to protect me and guide me and to show me where I can be of service because I'm not always aware of that, especially if I'm just in go mode. Um, I feel like stating those intentions and, and offering space to be mindful and present of something that shows up in my world where I can be of service um, gives me that opportunity to step into it. And when I do, you know, I feel good. Um, and that's primarily how I, I try to live my life is to, you know, take care of myself, but show up for other people. I do want to say this, too, is that 
this, a big part of this journey for me has been self-love. And for a lot of my life, through getting sober, I've realized through a lot of my life, I gave more of myself than I should have to people and situations. And I burn myself out. Um, and I need more energy for me than I realize. Like, I can still be of service, but from a space where I'm filled up, like, I don't have to burn myself out just to be of service. Like, that's not, to me, that's not being of service. It's just like perpetuating an unhealthy cycle, you know? Um, like, I need to take care of myself first. And the more I stay sober and the more I, I work on myself, the more self-love that I'm able to cultivate and share with other people. Um, and it gets better and that part of me grows and um, the connections I make with people and my ability to be of service grows. Um, and it's, it's amazing, it's this process of expansion and what I call like um, energetic evolution in a sense. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone, but it does to me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'll reel it back in here. Uh, yeah, and being of service, definitely in this program, being of service is very important. My first year and a half, um, I started to chair meetings, and I have a chair here, and I remember sitting behind this podium and like my fucking legs were just like shaking and I didn't know what I was doing, but I tried, I put in some effort and lo and behold, time after time, um, it got easier, it got better. Um, and I always, I don't know, like I definitely got more out of that than just sitting in the meeting. Like there's something really amazing about um, holding space here and, and showing up and being of service that way. Um, and I try, you know, like I do my best um, to show up and do things like this. And that's why I'm grateful that you asked me to do this. Um, this is only my second time sharing my story ever. Um, but my life today is pretty amazing. I get to do cool shit all the time. Like I get to get on an airplane and go places and like hang out with cool people and have amazing experiences and um, fulfill my my spiritual life purpose and I, I get paid for it and I get to watch people transform, not just in these rooms, but in my, my professional work too. And it's it's an amazing process to observe someone transform spiritually. Like, there's this reciprocated aspect that I gain from being a part of that as well. And it's so fulfilling and, you know, I, I get to further my development in all aspects of my life. Um, I have a cool part-time job at Juiceland that I like, you know, <laughs> I get juice, I get good food, I get to hang out with cool young people and have a good time. Um, I, I do try to keep my life really simple these days. Um, still don't have a vehicle. I'm not really concerned about that at this point in my life. Um, you know, I do have some amends to make in that department, but you know, it comes with time. And I've realized that it is, it's a process really. Um, and I can just, I can rest 
confidently in myself and knowing that what I'm doing is the next right thing when I show up um, and, and am sober and try to be present the best way I can in, in my life and in other people's lives. And it just continues to get better and better and better and um, have my dog back. It's awesome. Uh, she's she's been a lifesaver for me throughout sobriety. Um, but I do want to say too that it's not all perfect. Um, I've gone through some really significant heartbreak in sobriety. I did not process my mother's the grief of my mother's loss very well um, because I was still active. So when I got sober had to sit with that and I still have to sit with that but pain is going to be there but you know like I can I have tools and and I have awareness and um I'm learning to be comfortable with discomfort and I think that's been really key for me in not just getting sober but staying sober um because even that gets easier to some degree I don't know what lies ahead of me um I'm pretty sure there's some pain. <laughs> if not, I'd be really surprised. But uh, yeah, um, but I know, I rest assured that um, as long as I continue to stay sober, continue to participate in this program, be of service, help people, and stay aligned to what I know is true for me, that you know any obstacle can be overcome. So yeah, that's... That's my story. I'm sticking to it. And <laughs> thank you, everyone, so much for showing up and supporting me. Um, I really enjoyed being of service tonight. And thank you. Thank I'm, you so yeah. much. Okay. <laughs>